is Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. Welcome to Wealth Wake Up Live. Saturday morning, Dick Donahue here in studio. Looking out those windows out there, though, it's a little nasty. Looks like there's a little bit of snow trying to come down in that rain and wind and blowy and wetty. And anyway, let's go ahead and spend some time talking about our weekly wrap-up for the week. And we saw that the major industries closed the week with modest gains. There was not a lot of conviction from either buyers or sellers, due in part to a growing sense that the market is overbought on a short-term basis. For the S&P 500... Friday's close at 46.04 marked an 11.8% rise off of its October 27th low of 41.17. It set a new 52-week high for the index. Relative strength in the mega-cap stocks helped the S&P 500 eke out a two-tenths of 1% gain, while the S&P 500 equal weight closed little change from last Friday. The mega-cap growth ETF closed with a nine-tenths of 1% gain. Alphabet was winning the standout from the, from, from the space. It gained 2.5% on the week after jumping more than 5% during Thursday's session following a, a, its Gemini AI model reveal. The move helped propel the communication services sector to a 1.4% gain this week. The consumer discretionary sector was another top performer, climbing 1.1%. Meanwhile, energy saw its largest decline, down 3.3%, as oil prices dropped 3.5% to 71.18 a barrel. Materials were down 1.7%, consumer staples down 1.3%. Those were the sectors that also registered notable declines. Market participants were dealing with some cross-currents this week. Renewed concerns about global growth emerged after Moody downgraded China's credit outlook to a negative from stable, which was tied in part to concerns about the structurally weaker growth prospects and the October jolts report. That's the job openings report. showed the lowest number of job openings, 8.733 million, since March of 21. Other economic data, however, fit with the soft landing narrative for the economy. That was great news for earnings, but may be bad news for rate cut expectations. The ISM, that's the Institute of Supply Management's non-manufacturing index for November, rose to 52.7 from 51.8, and the weekly jobless claims numbers remain consistent with a robust labor market. The November employment situation report was deemed solid overall, and the preliminary University of Michigan index of consumer sentiment for December was stronger than expected. The Fed Fund's futures market is no longer pricing in a rate cut in March following the week's data, with, but it seems a strong likelihood of a cut in May at 78.5% on Friday, according to the CME FedWatch tool. Treasury settled this week with losses largely in response to the release of the JOLTS report on Friday. The two-year note yielded, uh, climbed 18 basis points to 4.74%. The 10-year note yield rose two basis points to 4.25%. This price action put some renewed pressure on the 2s and 10s spread, which tightened by 16 basis points to minus 49 basis points. In other words, the uh, 10-year note right now is actually 49 basis points below the 2-year note, expecting longer-term rates to go down. But shorter-term rates, who knows? Okay, let's take a look at the action for this week. We saw that on Monday, after some ups and downs, price action in the early going, the major industries stuck to their relatively narrow trading ranges throughout most of the session. Your mega-cap stocks and your semiconductor stocks were weighed heavily on index performance. Navita was one of the most influential stocks in this respect. The mega-cap growth ETF declined 1.1%, and the PHLX semiconductor index fell 1.2%. The market cap-weighted S&P 500 closed with a half a percent loss, while the equal-weighted S&P eked out a tenth of 1% gain. So money was rotating into other stocks, which provided some offsetting support for the broader market. Airlines were winning standouts with respect after the news Alaska Airlines plans to acquire Hawaiian Holdings for $18 a share. Banks, retailers, and home builders were also relatively strong on Monday. 
The S&P 500 Bank ETF jumped 1.2%. The uh, S&P Retailer ETF rose 1.1%. And the S&P Home Builder Index climbed 7 tenths. Reviewing Monday's economic data, we saw that factory orders were down 3.6%. The prior month was revised to 2.3% from 2.8%, also a little lower. So the key takeaway from this report is that the October decrease was the largest month-to-month contraction since April of 20, when factory orders plunged 13.5% as coronavirus-related lockdowns spread. The October report also featured a downward revision to September figures, including orders for non-defense capital goods, including excluding aircraft, indicating that business spending in September was weaker than originally estimated. On Tuesday, we saw the trade was a negative bias. The advanced decline line favored decliners by a 7-3 margin at the New York Stock Exchange. The equal weight S&P closed down 9 tenths of 1%. Our mega-cap stocks were benefited from safe, safe haven buying activity, acted as support for the three major indices. Buyers were presumably drawn to mega-caps on renewed concerns about global growth prospects that also sent Treasury yields lower on Tuesday. The Moody's downgrade of China's credit outlook to negative from stable. It was tied in part to concerns about structurally weaker growth prospects in October Jolts report. That's, again, is your job openings report that featured the lowest number of job openings, 8.733 million since March of 2001, were primary factors that stroke worries about the economic slowdown. The latter news overshadowed a slight uptick in the ISM non-manufacturing index to 52.7 from 51.8. Just about everything else aside from mega caps participated in Tuesday's retreat. <coughs> Reviewing Tuesday's economic data, the November S&P Global U.S. Services PMI had a final of 50.8. A month ago, it was 50.6. The November ISM non-pandemic index, index was at 52.7. Again, a month ago, it was at 51.8. So a little bit of an increase there. The key takeaway from this report is that the largest sector of the U.S. economy saw a pickup in activity in November that is supportive of the soft landing view. The October jolts, that again, is a job opening report of $8.733 million. Uh, prior was revised to $9.350 million from $9.553 million. And on Wednesday, we saw that the session started on a mostly positive note. Relative to weakness in the mega cap space, limited index performance throughout the session, but buying activity was more robust after the surface on the early going. The market cap weighted S&P 500 was up at a half percent at its high, but closed with a four-tenths of one percent low. Loss. The S&P 500 equal weight was up nine-tenths at its best of the level of the day, but it also closed the session nearly unchanged from Tuesday. Many stocks rolled over in the afternoon trade with no specific catalyst to account for the price action. Still, the market held up okay when considering how the stocks climbed in a relatively short period of time. Shortly after the open, advancers had a better than a 3-to-1 lead over decliners at the New York Stock Exchange, but by the time it closed, came, decliners had an 11-to-10 lead over advancers. The early upside moves were the result of an inclination to buy on weakness after Tuesday's losses. They were supported by another drop in the 10-year yield in response to Wednesday morning's economic data. So reviewing Wednesday's data, we saw that the weekly mortgage bankers applications index was at 2.8%. That was up. The November ADP employment change, 103,000. Prior was revised to 105,000 from 113. And the third quarter productivity report revised to 5.2%. Prior was 4.7%. We also saw the key takeaway from this report is the connection between rising productivity and falling unit labor costs. Each is headed in the right direction for the Fed's purposes, which means interest rates should continue to move in the right direction for the market's purposes. The October trade balance was 60, minus $64.3 billion. Uh, prior was revised to minus $61.2 billion from 61.5. The key takeaway from this report is that different paths taken by exports and imports is that it fits with the narrative that underscores weaker activity abroad versus what has been seen in the U.S. Take our quick break. We will be back shortly. Thanks for being with us. 
Tis the season of savings during DeWard and Bodie's annual year-end clearance sale starting now. The year-end sale is your chance to get end-of-season savings on the best in-stock selection of appliances, barbecues, mattresses, and more. You'll find incredible savings on closeout appliances, floor models, one-onlys, and slightly blemished appliances. Get year-end deals on a huge selection of laundry sets, refrigerators, wall ovens, cooktops, ranges, and so much more. Plus, mattresses, adjustable bases, boxes, pillows, and sheets are all on sale. This weekend, earn up to $1,000 cash back on select appliance packages from top brands like Whirlpool, GE, KitchenAid, LG, Frigidaire, and more. Shop now for guaranteed delivery before Christmas on select in-stock products while availability lasts. Save your holiday cash and pay no money down and no interest for 12, 18, or up to 24 months on qualifying luxury brand appliances and up to 60 months on qualifying mattresses. Shop the year-end sale now at DeWard & Bodie in Bellingham, Burlington, and online at DeWardAndBodie.com. Financing OAC qualifications apply. Dr. John's Auto Clinic, located in Bellingham on Kentucky Street, is here for your auto repair and service needs. Trusted and affordable auto repair in Bellingham for over 25 years. Ask about their oil change and maintenance inspections. You can hear Brian from Dr. John's Auto Clinic every Saturday on In the Shop on Newstalk 790 KGMI. Or check out Dr. John's Auto Clinic at djautoclinic.com. And on Facebook for the latest in auto repair news. Dr. John's Auto Clinic, reliable, honest, and a part of this community for over 25 years. Give the gift of travel this holiday season and ring in the new year with a once-in-a-lifetime adventure. KGMI and Bel Air Tours and Adventures invite you to join the Cape Cod and the Islands Tour, June 1st through the 7th, with me, Deanna Haraluk. Explore the sandy beaches of Nantucket Island and Martha's Vineyard and cruise your way through the rich American history of the New England coast. Save your seat. They're going quickly. Visit KGMI.com to find out more. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning live and in studio. Nasty outside. Nice to be in here today, that's for sure. We are Asset Advisors. We are located out on the Pacific Highway in the Pacific Commerce Center. That's out by Wilson's Furniture as you head north on I-5. And our address is 5060 Pacific Highway Suite 101, Ferndale 98248. Our phone number 360-733-1200. And check out our website at wealthwakeup.com. Okay, continuing on with this week's wrap-up of the markets, we saw that on Thursday the stocks rebounded following Wednesday's modest declines. The major indices all closed near their best levels of the day with gains ranging from two-tenths of 1% to 1.4%. The S&P 500 was approaching the 4,600 level, reaching 4,590 at Thursday's high. Mega-cap stocks had an outsized influence on the index gains, but there was some buying activity under the surface. Alphabet, which is Google, which jumped more than 5% after introducing the Gemini AI model. Apple, Amazon were some of the top performers. Semiconductor stocks also outperformed the broader market. The PHLX Semiconductor Index climbed 2.8%. Relatively modest buying activity in the broader market led to a half a percent gain in equal weight S&P 500. Advancers had a 2 to 1 lead over decliners and the New York Stock Exchange had a 3 to 2 point 3 to 2 lead over the Nasdaq. Thursday's positive bias was also stemming from relatively pleasing economic data that fit with soft landing narrative. Specifically, weekly initial job claims were little changed at 220,000 and continuing claims fell by 64,000 to 1.861 million. Reviewing Thursday's economic data, we saw those in, in, initial jobless claims for the week ending uh, increased by 1,000 to 220,000. Continuing jobless claims for the week in uh, November decreased 64,000 to that 1.861 million. The key takeaway from this report is that it isn't producing any major shockwaves as it relates to the labor market. It fits the narrative of the labor market loosening a bit, but not coming undone amid a stream of layoff announcements. Therefore, the market is viewing through, reviewing it through a soft landing, landing lens. And October's wholesale inventories were down four-tenths of 1%. The 
That was revised, the previous month was revised to zero from up two. And we saw the EIA, natural gas inventories, draw uh, 117 billion cubic feet. It was a build of 10 billion cubic feet from a week ago. Consumer inc- credit increased 5.2 billion in October, following an upward revised 12.2 billion from 9 billion in September. And the key takeaway from this report is that higher lending standards and reduced borrowing demand in the face of higher interest rates have slowed the pace of credit expansion. On Friday, our major indices closed Friday's session near the highs of the day. The S&P 500 was up four-tenths of 1%. It closed above 4,600 for the first time since March of 22. The Dow Jones Industrial Average, the NASDAQ Composite, and the Russell 2000 registered gains of four-tenths of 1%, five-tenths of 1%, and seven-tenths of 1%, respectively. The price action was more mixed in the early going, though as the market digested the morning's economic data. Stocks did not have an outsized reaction to the aforementioned reports, due in part to a growing sense that the market is due for consolidation. Another factor that kept buyer enthusiasm in check was the implication that strong data won't put the Fed in a rate-cut frame of mind. As a result, the Fed Fund's future market is no longer pricing in a cut in March, but sees still a strong likelihood of a May cut 78.5% versus 89% on Thursday according to the CME FedWatch tool. The two-year note yield climbed 17 basis points, that would be 0.17%, and 18 basis points on the week to 4.74. The 10-year note rose 12 basis points and 2 basis points this week to 4 and a quarter. So reviewing Friday's economic data, we saw that non-farm payrolls increased by 199,000 in November. That was after an increase of 150,000 in October. Non-farm private payrolls increased 150,000 in November after a revised increase of 85,000 in October. Average hourly earnings increased four-tenths of 1% in November following a two-tenths of 1% increase in October. The average work week rose to 34.4 hours in November. That was up from 34.3 in October. The unemployment rate fell 3.7% in November from 3.9 in October key takeaway from this report is the recognition that the unemployment rate dropped as the participation rate increased, which suggests hiring activity in November was, word of the day, solid. In fact, the number of employed civilians increased by 747,000, while the number of unemployed civilians decreased by 215,000. The preliminary reading of the University of Michigan's Consumer Sentiment Index for December came in at 69.4. That versus the 61.3 in November the same period a year ago, the day index stood at 59.8. So prior to this report, consumer sentiment had declined for four straight months. The key takeaway from this report is the linkage between the increase in sentiment and the decrease in inflation expectations. The latter set the tone for improved attitude across age, income, education, geography, and political identification. So year-to-date up through yesterday, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is now up 9.4%. However, it was unchanged for the week. The NASDAQ is up 37.6, was up 7 tenths of 1% for the week. The S&P 500 is up 19.9 and up 2 tenths of 1% this week. The Russell 2000 was up 6.8% and it was up 1% for the week. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live. We'll be back shortly after a little news break. Thanks for being with us. At Number One Automotive Body Repair, we know you're a great driver. The creme de la creme, the cream of the crop. Dare we say, F1's 2024 hotshot, but everyone else on the road. They're not you. And when they ruin your day, we're here to help. Bellingham's Number One Automotive Body Repair is the premier location for all your collision repair needs. Learn more at NumberOneABR.com, part of the Number One Collision Group. At Puget Sound Energy, we're proudly aspiring to reduce our own emissions to net zero and to go beyond by helping others reduce carbon across Washington. Together, we're investing in local renewables, strengthening the electric grid, helping customers switch to electric vehicles, innovating with low carbon resources, supporting our communities, and saving energy along the way. Together, we're creating a clean energy future. You know those friends who say, stop by any time, and you're like, you don't really mean that. 
Well, unlike those friends, Dewey Griffin Subaru's Express Certified Subaru Tire and Service Center means it. They're open six days a week, including Saturdays. Stop by anytime you need an oil change or any other minor maintenance, and they'll take care of you. No appointment necessary, and you'll get a free car wash with your service. Dewey Griffin Subaru. Community-minded and community-driven. 1800 Iowa Street in Bellingham. Dedicated to service, shining a light on local individuals, law enforcement, and groups giving back to our community. Brought to you by Nieder House of Luxury in Bellingham. Dedicated to service acknowledges the Whatcom Literacy Council staff, volunteers, and the many community contributors who helped make this year's literacy breakfast a huge success. More than $30,000 was raised to help fund free adult literacy programs in Whatcom County. Improved literacy is a key component to help people become more empowered, employable, and and better able to care for themselves and their families. And this money will help provide free tutoring and small group classes for hundreds of local adults motivated to learn. Dedicated to service. Brought to you by Niederhaus of Luxury. Voted best jewelry store in the Northwest. This holiday, start with Niederhaus of Luxury for their beautiful selection of jewelry with unique and custom designs perfect for the one you love for Christmas and the New Year. Find them at 21 Bellwether Way, Suite 107, next to Lombardi's Back Patio. Niederhaus of Luxury. The latest local news and important topics of the day from the West Mechanical Studio. Tired of inefficient heating, poor indoor air quality, and rising energy bills? Contact West Mechanical today to explore going ductless with a system from Mitsubishi Electric Heating and Air Conditioning. Find them at westmechanical.net. Get the latest news and information 24-7 with KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. CBS News Brief. The Texas Supreme Court is putting a court ruling on hold that would have allowed Kate Cox, whose fetus has a fatal diagnosis, to get an abortion. CBS's Nicole Barker. Cox says her doctors told her her baby may not live longer than a week once born and that her pregnancy complications could prevent her from having children in the future. Now to the Israel-Hamas war as the United States vetoes a U.N. Security Council demand for an immediate ceasefire. Robert Wood is a U.S. Deputy U.N. Ambassador. Unfortunately, nearly all of our recommendations were ignored. And the result of this rush process was an imbalanced resolution that was divorced from reality. President Biden's son, Hunter, is now facing nine new tax evasion indictments. Before that happened, he told a podcast critics are taunting him. There is no doubt in my mind, and this may sound like some crazy hyperbole, is that they're trying to kill me through other means. Um, oh, yeah. And I just won't let them. CBS News Brief. And I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the men who died. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning. Going to continue down our path here today. Going to talk about our high-frequency data tracker for the week. And we saw that the initial jobless claims for the week ending December 1st came in at 220,000. That was actually an increase of five-tenths or a half a percent. Continuing jobless claims were 1,861,000. That was a decline of 3.3%. We saw that box office receipts for the weekend of December 7th were down another 16.8%. Rail car traffic, December 1st, was up almost 23%. Steel production as of December 4th was up about 1%. Hotel occupancy for the weekend ending November 25th was at 54.2%. That was down 13.1% week over week. And the TSA checkpoint data is December 6th, 2,119,649 passengers a day. That was down 7.1%. The supply of motor gasoline uh, was down 3.2%, or up 3.2%, I should say. And global commercial flights for the weekend in December 7th, 118,630 flights a day. That compares to 114,148 back in 2019. So it was up about 3.9% since 2019. It was actually up two-tenths of 1% on the week. I just want to make a note here. A couple of weeks ago, um, I used information from a, a newsletter that I get by John Malden, M-A-U-L-D-I-N, called Thoughts from the Frontline, and he was talking about the woes of Social Security. 
Well, his newsletter last week, December 2nd, uh, comes out every Saturday morning. You can go online. The newsletter is actually free. It does some really good information in a lot of his newsletters. I've been reading these things for, I don't know, 15, 18 years, maybe maybe pushing even close to 20. But a um, long time at any rate. And last week he covered health care, a major a minor major problem, very good in-depth newsletter. I'm not going to spend time today talking about what he talked about or what he covered in here as far as healthcare is concerned, but I am going to recommend that you go to that website, th- uh, basically Thoughts from the Frontline. If you're interested in that area, you might want to take a look at it because there was some really good information in there on what's happening with healthcare in the United States. Okay, let's go ahead and go back here and talk about some of the things that we're seeing. And one is that the um, growth, we're seeing a discounting, and we think it's creating an opportunity here. Uh, Over the past two decades, small cap growth stocks have typically traded at a price to earnings premium relative to large cap stocks. In other words, their uh, P.E. ratios have been higher than the large cap. But what are, the, what are the implications when small cap growth is at a discount to large caps as it is today? In other words, are they on sale? Well, historically, small cap S&P 500-600 growth index has traded an average premium of about, thir- about 13% relative to the large cap S&P 500 index. That makes sense given that the faster growth that should be inherent in small cap companies and growth company fundamentals. As of November 30th, the small cap growth index presented a P.E. discount of about 21%. In other words, it was 21% lower. Moreover, small cap growth stocks are currently trading at a P.E. discount below their February 2001 levels. So we believe investors may want to review their equity applications of small cap growth stocks, considering what is historically big discount to large cap growth stocks. So just a little idea there that... Maybe small caps might make some sense when we're sitting out here looking at our portfolios. And I'm going to spend some time here now going through, um, I'm going to dig a little bit deeper into, uh, into, into the S&P 500 index. And the S&P 500 index is widely regarded as a barometer for the overall stock market. The S&P 500 index tracks the performance of 500 of the largest companies listed in the U.S. stock exchanges. The S&P 500 index adapts a market cap weighting approach, allocating a higher percentage to the index for the companies with larger market caps. In other words, bigger companies make up a larger part of the index. And they're adjusting this for the number of shares available publicly traded. So year-to-date through December 5th, the S&P 500 index has delivered a total return of about 20.8%. Now, I mentioned a little while ago where this was, but you're going to find some of this information here really interesting as I go through this. Serving as a benchmark for the broader stock market, many investors find themselves disappointed in their portfolios of not experiences comparable growth this year, falling short of that 20% mark. To unravel the reason behind the disparity, along with other valuation metrics, we're going to present three informative information pieces here. One is the year-to-date return contributions for the S&P 500 index. So if you've adhered to the advice of financial experts, and we believe you should, and build a highly diversified portfolio, this year may have seen your performance lagging behind the S&P 500 index. The reason lies at the dominance of what we call the Magnificent Seven. Now, a couple of years ago, um, we, we were calling these the FANG stocks, but we've had a couple of, of additions to them. So now it's the Magnificent Seven. The Magnificent Seven are Apple, NVIDIA, Microsoft, Amazon, Tesla, Alphabet, and Meta. Astonishingly, these seven giants currently boost a combined 28.6% of the S&P 500 index, and they've contributed the most returns to the market this year. So basically, those seven companies make up almost 29% of the total S&P 500 index when you look at its weighting. So as of the end of October, the S&P 500 index slowed a 10.66% increase for the year, the Magnificent 7 accounting for more than 100% of this return. This implies that the collective performance of the remaining 493 companies was negative for the year. 
Then in November, the S&P 500 index surged 9.1%. Even though the Magnificent 7 rose in November, gains were much more widespread. Consequently, the Magnificent 7 contributed year-to-date through November to the overall S&P index has dropped to 70.4% from over 100% in October. So what we're saying is up through September, um, um, basically, or up through October, basically, that those seven stocks contributed for over 100% of the total gain of the S&P 500. Then the market started to rotate. We're seeing a broader market. So now it only contributes to about 70.4%. Now, also, let's look at the estimated versus actual earnings per share growth for the S&P 500 index. The third quarter earnings season is concluding. With 491 out of 500 companies in the S&P 500 index having reported in the third quarter, 98.6% of the total market capitalization, impressively, 81.5% of these companies have exceeded expectations, surprisingly to the upside. Notably, earnings per share in the third quarter are up 4.5% versus a year ago. The price earnings season expectations estimated 1.2% year-over-year decline. So significantly, this quarter marks a noteworthy reversal, representing the first positive quarter after three consecutive down quarters. Earnings are still down for the year, but the consensus outlook sees this as behind us and experts earnings, expecting earnings to go up in 24. So let's look at our forward PE by the S&P 500 index segment based on 23 earnings. So basically, even though earnings rose this in the third quarter, they're still down for all of 23. Yet the S&P 500 indexes is surged by 20.8%. This was led by this increase in the price-to-earnings multiple of the S&P index, which expanded to 21.4 times. In other words, the price of the S&P right now stands at 21.4 times the earnings. At the end of November, from 17.1 times at the start of the year. The notable expansion this year can be primarily attributed to the extraordinary, extraordinary price performance of those magnificent seven. Their PE has experienced a significant surge from up 22.8 times earnings at the beginning of the year to 36.6 times at the end of November. In contrast, the PE for the other 493 companies has moved much less dramatically. It was 16.1 times earnings in January. It's now 18.3. So those seven companies are a big reason that we've seen those gains in some of those broader indexes. And overall, we have not experienced that big of gains. So it's a case if you had a lot of money in those seven companies, you made a lot of money. If you didn't have a lot of money in those companies, frankly, we didn't make the money that we'd like to make. Okay. Well, let's go out here. We're finding that uh, uh, millions of independent contractors are going to face new IRS reporting mandates. Americans who work as independent contractors will receive 30 million new 1099K forms in their mailboxes this January. Even though the IRS lacks the centralized leadership to use the information, it is unlikely most Americans will understand how to use these forms, according to a new report from the General Accounting Office. The additional reporting for GIG or gig workers and other contractors stems from the American Rescue Plan of 2021, which lowered the reporting threshold for Form 1099-K. As a result, the IRS now requires third-party payment platforms such as PayPal, Venmo, Amazon, and Squire to issue forms, also called information returns, to any independent contractor receiving a payment of more than $600. Previously, the 1099-Ks were only required to be issued to a taxpayer that had annual payments of 20000 and 200 transactions. So as a result, many taxpayers who have never received 1099-Ks before are going to receive them this year, the GAO said in this new report. According to the Congressional Joint Committee on Taxation, over 90% of this new tax will fall on middle-class families and gig workers. The IRS itself calculated the new rule resulted in 44 million Form 1099-Ks being filed in 2024. That's an increase of roughly 30 million. So, again, it resulted in 44 million 
versus previously an, an increase in 30 million. So before there were 14 million, now there'll be 44 million of them. The forms may help some taxpayers comply, but despite IRS communication efforts, it also may exasperate confusion among some taxpayers, such as big gig workers, who may not understand the taxability of their payments and taxes owed, according to GAO. For instance, some of these taxpayers may not know how to calculate profit or loss, as they may not understand the information reported on the form. This puts them at risk of inaccurately reporting their incomes to the IRS and not meeting the tax obligations, according to GAO. Maybe Hunter Biden can use that as an excuse. Anyway, the IRS does not have a plan to analyze the new data to support the enforcement and outreach activities. The GAO report said this limits its understanding of changes in taxpayer burden. The GAO also noted that the IRS already faces significant challenges with regard to its handling of information returns, which are filed by third parties such as employers, businesses, banks, and payment networks. And while the IRS is supposed to use this data to identify potential taxpayer underreporting and fraud, the IRS lacks the centralized leadership to make strategic decisions related to the use of information returns across the agency, according to the GAO. So while information returns should be integral to multiple IRS compliance programs, no office is responsible for coordinating these issues, according to the GAO. So kind of some interesting cross-current thoughts on, on uh, this little forms and these report reporting that's going to be required out here. Okay, well, I'm going to take a quick one. Well, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back after a short. Oh, there's no place like home for the holidays. Especially a warm and comfortable home. This year, deck the halls with an upgrade to your heating and cooling system and get a free water heater. Hi, I'm John Barron, owner of Barron Heating AC Electrical and Plumbing. From a new heat pump to a heating and cooling system upgrade, we're offering special incentives this holiday season, sure to warm your home and fill your heart with joy. Family-owned and operated for over 50 years, Barron backs all our work with 100% satisfaction guarantee and five-star customer service. For a limited time, Barron is offering a free water heater with the purchase of a new heating and cooling system or $500 off the HVAC system of your choice. With short wait times, fast track to installation, and flexible payment options, you'll be happy in a million ways because for the holidays, you can't beat warm, sweet home. Barron, your full-service HVAC electrical and plumbing contractor. Our mission, improving lives. How do we earn our reputation for repairs you can trust? Great mechanics? Yeah. Quality parts? Absolutely. But the real secret is knowing the most important part of every vehicle is the driver. And here's your keys. She's already Right on time. Thanks. With over 30 years of service, you can trust Bellingham Automotive to help you with any regular maintenance needs or unexpected repairs. Schedule your appointment at 360-676-5200 or visit BellinghamAutomotive.com. There's a lot going on right now, and broadcasters are on the ground covering all of it, bringing you the weather, the traffic, and breaking news, all while entertaining you 24 hours a day. Someone needs to tell you what's going on around the world and in our hometowns, and that someone is us. We are free radio. We are always there. We are broadcasters. Visit wearebroadcasters.com or text radio to 52886 to learn more. Furnished by NAB and this station. Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land God bless the USA Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning. As always, if you got questions for me, give me a call. 360-733-1200. Well, the Washington Policy Center came out with a report here a couple of weeks ago basically debating a little bit of uh, some of the information that's coming from the state land commissioner's office regarding their strategies on climate and forests that, uh, that, uh, that as far as how cutting forests is going to accelerate climate change. And the land commissioner, uh, Hillary France, is highlighting a project that should stop harvest in state forests in order to store CO2. Scientific research demonstrates that these projects actually increase CO2 emissions and the risk of the climate change. 
There are reasons to stop harvest in some forests, including providing wildlife habitat, but scientific research consistently shows that sustainable timber harvests are the best way to reduce atmospheric CO2, and stopping harvests may increase CO2 emissions overall. Commissioner France claims stopping the harvest in state forests allows trees to grow and remove CO2 from the air. But science from the United Nations, the U.S. Forest Service, the state of California, and the University of Washington all agree that stopping harvests actually increases CO2 emissions. Forestry researchers for the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Pacific Northwest Research Station have consistently found that locking up forests ends up emitting more CO2 than sustainable harvests. Dr. Jeremy Freed notes that when the full energy benefits of harvested wood projects are considered, well-managed forests typically create more total climate benefits than does any scenario intended to reduce the harvest. The study released earlier all the this year confirms that finding that noting that forest growth models used to claim climate benefits from reducing harvests is exaggerated. exaggerated. The study found that models overstate that carbon can be sequestered under light touch or caretaker management, potentially leading to management decisions that fail to deliver the expected carbon sequestration benefits. Data from the California confirmed these findings. In 2019, California's survey of forests found that the only forests that are emitting CO2 are those in a reserve status. Forests that are being harvested are being unreserved, are all absorbing and storing carbon. Additionally, wood products displace more carbon-intensive building materials like concrete and steel, reducing overall total CO2 emissions. The UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change notes that using wood instead of concrete and steel is a good way to reduce CO2 emissions. Scientists at the UN wrote, recent studies suggest that technically uh, possible substitution of wood and sustainably managed forests for non-wood materials in the construction sector, which is concrete, steel, etc., and steel in single-family homes, apartment houses, industrial buildings reduces the GHG emissions in most cases. So kind of a little contrasting store reports coming out there. I find it interesting. My background many, many years ago, I started out in this world with a degree in forestry, so I continue to follow what we see happening out here. Okay, well, we're seeing that the U.S. job openings fall to their lowest since 2021 as the labor market cools. The U.S. job openings slumped in October uh, since the lowest since March of 21, adding evidence that the labor market is cooling. Uh, available position decreased to 8.7 million, downwardly from 9.4 million a month earlier. The Bureau of Labor Statistics jobs and labor turnover survey showed Tuesday that hiring edge lower, layoffs are a little changed. The openings figure was below all estimates in the Bloomberg survey of economists. The decline was broad based across sectors. Notable drops in healthcare, financial activities, and accommodations and food services. The so-called quits rate, which measures voluntary job leavers as a share of total employment, held for a fourth month at the lowest level since early 21. In moderation, in quits may imply that Americans are feeling less confident in their ability to find another job in the current market, or reflect a smaller wage premium in offer on offer for job switchers. With employers scaling back hiring and wage growth decelerating, it's unclear how much longer the job market will underpin strong consumer spending. Federal Reserve officials are expected to leave interest rates unchanged when they meet next week, and they have emphasized the trajectory of the labor market will help inform future decisions. Investors expect rate cuts to begin possibly as soon as March, although we think they'll maybe down a little bit later in the May meeting. And the uh, ratio of openings of unemployed people slid to 1.3. That's the lowest since mid of 21. We're still somewhat indicated of a tight labor market. The figure has eased substantially over the last year. As peak in, in 2022, the ratio was 2 to 1. Again, that was the ratio of unemployed people, um, to openings to unemployed people. A separate report out Tuesday showed the U.S. Uh, service sector expanded its fastest pace in November as business activity and employment picked up, and some economists have questioned the reliability of the JOLTS statistics in part because of the survey's low response rate. So 
So in other words, are they working on a broad enough database to really offer up some of those is some of those uh, some of the numbers that we're looking at? Well, fun little interesting piece here. I thought I'd share with you. These are the wealthiest sports team owners in the United States. This is brought up because Miriam Adelson, who's the widow of casino magnate Sheldon Adelson, is breaking into the upper echelon of the U.S. sports team ownership with her planned purchase of a majority stake in the Dallas Mavericks basketball team. The Las Vegas Sands Corp. heir, who's worth an estimated $33 billion, would be the third richest owner of the U.S. sports team, just after Steve Ballmer and Rob Walton, according to Bloomberg Billionaires Index. She's also the only woman in the top 10. So not included in is the estate of Microsoft Corporation founder Paul Allen, who, of course, owns our local Seattle Seahawks and the Portland Trailblazers. Sports teams are among the shiniest trophy assets a person can buy. As valuations have continued to climb, ultra-wealthy billionaires are increasingly targeting the industry. In many cases, this new class of tycoons is replacing the merely wealthy businessmen and families that have owned these franchises for decades. Adelson's purchase puts the Mavericks' total valuation at $3.5 billion, according to The Athletic. That would be less than the $4 billion that, that Matt Ishbis paid for the Phoenix Suns earlier this year. But Mark Cuban, who was worth an estimated $6.4 billion, acquired the Mavericks from H. Bross Perot in 2000 for $285 million. Under his ownership, the team has won three division titles, two conference championships, and one NBA title in 2011. So here are the 10 wealthiest owners of U.S. sports teams in ascending order. Number 10, Jerry Jones, the former college football player, majority owner of Comstock Resources, acquired the Dallas Cowboys in 1989. The team has become the biggest chunk of Jones's $12.7 billion fortune. Steve Cohen, Cohen's fortune has $13.9 billion worth, is mainly comprised of a stake in .72 asset management, also owns the New York Mets baseball team. Philip Anschultz, he, he has a closely held Anschultz Corporation, owns a collection of sports teams in the U.S. and Canada and Europe. These include the NHL, Los Angeles Kings, soccer teams in the Houston Dynamo and Los Angeles Galaxy, and he has about $15.2 billion fortune. Stan Kroenke, he's uh, through the Kroenke Sports and Entertainment, the Tycoon Coon controls the Los Angeles Rams football team, the Denver Nuggets basketball franchise, Colorado Avalanche ice hockey team, as well as soccer clubs in Colorado Rapids and Arsenal and the Arsenal in the United Kingdom. He's worth about $16.3 billion. David Tepper, he's co-founder of the investment advisor Appaloosa Management uh, LP is also owner of the Carolina Panthers NFL, has a net worth of 17.3. Hassel Platner, he's the co-founder of software giant SAP SE, is the majority owner of the National Hockey League San Jose Sharks. He's worth an estimated $18 billion. Number four on this list is Daniel Gilbert. He's the Rockets uh, uh, CEO's founder, Worth $21.3 billion, holds a majority stake in the NBA Cavaliers, Cleveland Cavaliers. Miriam Adelson will be number three. She's the widow of the casino magnet, is selling worth $2 billion worth of her Las Vegas, Las Vegas Sands to the, so the family can buy a majority stake in the Mavericks from Cuban. Rob Walton, he's a former Walmart court, uh, Inc. chair. He owns the Denver Broncos football team, has about a net, net worth of $70.4 billion. And then Steve Ballmer, who's the former Microsoft chief executive and fifth richest person in the world, owns the NBA Los Angeles Clippers. He's worth $131.7 billion. So just some kind of little interesting numbers there about what big people with big money are doing with it. Okay, well, I'm going to talk a little bit here about estate planning and gifting reminder for this gifting season. The holidays are in full swing. The end of the year is quickly approaching. Season of giving is on us. And so I think it would be a good idea to discuss gifting. Let's first address the elephant in the room, the $17,000 annual limit. This is perhaps the most misunderstood concept that I come across. The $17,000 limit is not a limit. 
let me say that again, $17,000 is not a limit. What it does is a triggering report. Most of you may know you have to give away any individual $17,000 each year without concern. However, if you exceed that amount, it doesn't mean that you broke some kind of law. Rather, it's at that point that you have to report the gift to the IRS. In other words, if you give any individual $17,001, you're required to report the gift on a gift tax return. Now, before anyone gets too excited about reporting, remember it's unlikely that the gifter is going to actually have to pay any gift tax on that gift. Everyone is given as what is known a unified credit <coughs> to apply to the federal gift and estate tax. You simply elect to use a portion of your unified credit and not pay the tax. So gifts are normally treated as income. If you give six ten thousand to your son, he doesn't have to report the gift as income. It's a gift, and there aren't any actual tax consequences. Now, keep in mind, if you give more than $17,000, you can give $17,000 to the son, to his wife, to grandkids, fund 529 college plans, all kinds of things that you can do. <coughs> and again, if you exceed that $17,000, you file a gift tax return, more than likely you're just going to use up some of your federal credit. We're running out of time. Dick Donnie here with you with Wealth Wake Up Live. Don't forget our show tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. Questions for me? Give me a call, on the show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision.